Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to Coming Clean with your host, Benji Backer. I am so excited to be joined today by what I have heard of as the queen of water here in Arizona. So I just moved to Arizona uh, a little less than a year ago, but I haven't spent a lot of time here yet. I'm finally getting my roots here. But I've heard constantly that the one person I need to talk to about the water issue, which of course is much broader than Arizona, which we'll get into today, but the person to talk to about Arizona's water issue, about the West's water issue, is Catherine Sorensen, who's joining us today from Arizona. She's the director of research at the Kyle Center for Water Policy Center at the Morrison Institute and the former director of Phoenix's Water Services. Catherine, welcome to the show. Benji, thanks for having me. Uh, I got to tell you, I I don't know who you're talking to, but uh, my status as the queen of water in Arizona is greatly exaggerated. (laughs) Well, exaggerated or not, you've made a huge impact on this issue, and it would be really helpful to hear your background and your story about how you got to this, just to set the stage for our conversation today. If you wouldn't mind kind of going through that. Sure. Yeah. I'm I'm from Tempe, Arizona. Um, And I I think that was important in uh, my career trajectory, because I think growing up here in the desert, you kind of inherently understand that, that water is valuable. And so I had an early interest in water, Decided very early on, actually, as a, a high school at McClintock High School, sorry, as a senior at uh, McClintock High School here in Tempe, that I would become an economist. So it was kind of natural for me to put water and economics together. And um, that's what I studied in both college and graduate school. I um, went on through kind of a circuitous route to. Um, end up running water utilities here in both Mesa and Phoenix and have never looked back. I, I absolutely love my career. It's been, a, it's been a ball. Well, I I think your interest of growing up here and living through it is really remarkable because a lot of people come here knowing that water is a problem, but just kind of don't understand the severity of it. And then they either stay here and never understand it or they leave. Or if you grow up here, you know, like most places, a lot of people end up migrating out of the state that they grew up in. And so you're you're a lifer here. And that's pretty rare in Arizona, but it's also rare a lot of places these days. How bad is the issue here? I think that that's the real question that I want to start out with, because as someone who just moved here and as somebody who's been hearing everything from it's not a problem, it's so over-exaggerated, or it is a problem, but it's way over-exaggerated and we don't really have that much to worry about, to you should not move to Arizona at all because of the water crisis in Arizona. How bad is the issue, first and foremost? You know, actually, I'm quite optimistic about Arizona's water future uh, for a couple of reasons. And, and let me just take a step back and give you some context. Um, there, there is a lot of water here in central Arizona. Uh, we are very blessed to have very large and productive groundwater aquifers. Uh, that means that there's a lot of groundwater here in the Valley of the Sun. Uh, we also enjoy the flows of the Salt and Verde River systems, which are, you know, in-state uh, rivers. And then, of course, we import Colorado River water into central Arizona. A lot of the media narrative uh, about prices uh, regarding water in Arizona has to do with the Colorado River. 
And the Colorado River it definitely is in some dire straits. It, it is a very overallocated river, meaning that people use uh, more from it annually than Mother Nature can really sustain. Um, and there are some, some real problems created by climate change on the Colorado River system. So that drives a lot of the media narrative. But, but what is less well known is that we have these groundwater supplies that we can fall back on and that we enjoy the flows of these in-state rivers. So al although Phoenix often gets criticized for being a, you know, a large city out in the middle of the desert, you know, people need to understand that it, Phoenix was very carefully chosen. Phoenix is here because it is where some of the state's major rivers come together. That's, that's really fascinating. And I didn't realize the groundwater reserves that this, this area has and, and has had, uh, as well as those other rivers that obviously don't get the attention. Can you go into what's happening at the Colorado River level and, and how, from what I understand, the Colorado River problem obviously has ramifications past Arizona's borders, California, other states are, are having issues with, with the same crisis. Um, but that here in Phoenix with the underwater underground res reservoirs, we have you know, water that we have access to. What is the timeline for needing alternative sources to the groundwater here in Arizona? And also, how does the uh, Colorado River itself ha have uh, ramifications of the other states? Do they have similar timelines? Um, okay, well, there, there's a lot there. So let me start with the Colorado River first. Um, the, the Colorado River is shared by, with, between seven states and the Republic of Mexico. And um, it serves on the order of 40 million people. I, I don't know how many uh, millions of acres of, of agriculture, but a lot. Um, it, it is the river of the Southwest. And unfortunately, uh, we collectively, all of us, so all seven states and the Republic of Mexico, we, we really use more water from this river than Mother Nature can can predictively and annually provide, uh, you know, kind of on a, on a consistent basis. And so we, so we say that the river is over-allocated. And it is over-allocated to a very large degree. Um, I'm going to give you some perspective on that. In the city of Phoenix itself, uh, people use on the order of 300,000 acre-feet of water every year. The Colorado River system is over-allocated by about 1.2 million acre-feet. So it, it's about four phoenixes is how I like wow. to think of it, right? So it's, it is not only over-allocated, it is very over-allocated. And, and that's a huge problem. And as a result of this over-allocation, combined with uh, what has been 25 years of what scientists say is the worst 25-year drought in the last 1,200 years, uh, the reservoirs that serve the river, Lakes Powell and Mead, have been in decline, and precipitously so. And, and that's a lot of what drives the media narrative about crisis. Mm. Um, and that is a real, that's a real problem. And, it, and uh, it is an issue that we need to address by finding ways collectively among the seven states in Mexico of using significantly less water. That, as you can imagine, is a really difficult proposition in the arid West. Oh. Uh, but I also want to give you the context that 
the vast majority of the water that is used in the Colorado River Basin is actually used for agriculture. So for all that people, you know, get upset about population increases in Denver and Albuquerque and Phoenix and Vegas and Los Angeles and San Diego and all these cities that, that rely on Colorado River water, um, they need to also understand that agriculture is, you know, the largest user of water in the, in the basin and that it will take all of us coming together across these sectors to solve that problem. Yeah, that's a really fascinating tidbit there because you know you usually hear like, oh, I've got to take shorter showers and I've got to do all these things. And yes, I'm sure that over time, and especially with the other, you know, percentage that's not agriculture, it definitely helps and it all adds up. But at the same time, that seems to be where the bulk of the problem lies. Is there a way to shift away from agriculture using so much without, you know, killing the industries in the West? Right, right, right. I, so, so that. That's a difficult question, and I want to be careful to say that there's a fundamental question of fairness in asking farmers to grow less of a certain crop while we are watering lawns or filling swimming pools, right? right. So contributions to solving this problem need to come from everyone. But just because of the size of the problem of the overallocation of the river and the large amount of water that agriculture uses, we can't get there. We can't solve this problem without a significant um, change in, in agricultural water usage. As you know, Benji, that's, that's really tough, right? Um, rural communities depend on this water. It is their economy. It is their lifeblood. Uh, asking them to use less is, is very, very difficult to do. But we need to all try to find ways to do so. And if we don't, then this river system will eventually crash. So if it crashes, are places like Phoenix with underwater or underground, I keep saying underwater, underground reservoirs, uh, I would hope that there is some, some things under the water there. Uh, is the underground reservoir, is that sustainable for a long time, a short period of time? Do other places have that accessibility? That's a, that's a really great question. So no, other places don't necessarily have large and productive aquifers like we do. Um, Vegas does not. The cities of Southern California um, do not, you know, we, we really are lucky to have uh, this regional aquifer that we can fall back on, but it is uh, what we call a fossil groundwater supply, meaning that it's like an oil field. Um, the water that has been laid down here was laid down over thousands and tens of thousands of years. And if you pump it out at an unsustainable rate, then it's just gone. So while it's here as a backup supply and can last, for many generations, if we manage it sustainably and responsibly, we have to be really careful to do so uh, because it's like an oil field. And if we pump it out, it'll just be gone. But on the Colorado River system, it is also important to understand that um, the, the, the cities and Indian communities in central Arizona for the most part have uh, lower priority water rights to the Colorado River system than the farmers in Western Arizona, the Native American communities in Western Arizona, and the farmers in California. Mm. And what that means is that when there's not enough Colorado River water to go around, that the cities and Indian communities in Central Arizona kind of take the hit first, that our supplies get cut before supplies in Western Arizona and California get cut. That Obviously, that's problematic. 
But at the same time, it has given us a sense of the importance of proactive methodical planning for shortage that, of course, now that shortage is really here, has served us well. It has meant that cities have, for the most part, invested in alternative water supplies like reclaimed water, Um, that cities have invested in conservation, Uh, that cities have been doing the things that they need to do to make sure that groundwater is managed sustainably and is there for the long term. So while we're at a disadvantage when there isn't enough Colorado River water to go around, in an odd way, it has uh, forced us to be very prepared, and that serves us well. Yet it's adding that efficiency that has already started to to happen and, and looking forward because it's not where every community has zero water right now, but the the increases in efficiency have allowed us to to delay the timelines, it seems like, of some of those kind of worst case scenarios to to a place out in the future. Phoenix obviously seems like it's well positioned to have a, a longer term date. What does a city do if, so let's just say, I want to get to solutions in a second to the Colorado River and to this, but let's say for some reason we continue to get Colorado River down to zero and we don't have anything left there. What would a city like Las Vegas do? Well, Las Vegas is in a a fundamentally different situation than Phoenix or Tucson, for example. So uh, Vegas is nearly entirely dependent on Colorado River supplies. They they don't really have um, backup groundwater supplies a little bit. Um, They've done some importation from other groundwater basins. But, you know, at at the end of the day, uh, they are very, very reliant on Colorado River water. That's why uh, the city of Las Vegas had to invest, oh, heavens, north of a billion dollars on what they call the third straw, which is uh, a a pipeline that goes down even, you know, very, very deep in Lake Mead, below Deadpool levels in the reservoir, so that um, Vegas will continue to have water from Lake Mead, uh, even if the reservoir hits Deadpool, which heaven forbid that ever happens, but they've had to invest in that kind of resiliency because they are so reliant on the Colorado river. It's a little different here in Phoenix in particular. Like I said, Phoenix has the, you know, we have the flows of the salt and Verde river system. About 60% of the water delivered in the city of Phoenix itself comes from the salt and Verde river system um, and a little less than 40% from the Colorado River system. And then Phoenix intentionally has avoided pumping groundwater so that it would be there for times of shortage and for future generations. So um, we, we just have a, a, a more diverse water supply portfolio than the city of Las Vegas. And, and so that puts us in a very different place physically when shortages occur. It seems like a city like, like Las Vegas doesn't get as much attention for being short on water as Phoenix does, but it seems like they're more in the red, needing to figure this out really soon, whereas it seems to me like Phoenix is in the yellow, still a problem, but has many options in a way that Las Vegas does not. Uh, What does the timeline look like for the American West to figure this out? Like, How long do we have of kind of these backup sources and these kind of efficiency measures Obviously, there's no perfect date, but is it decades? Is it centuries? Is it years? Where are we at? Well, it depends on where you are in the West. Um, here in the Phoenix area, 
you know, we have generations worth of, of groundwater, which is great. But like I said, if we do not manage it sustainably, right. then um, it'll be gone, right? So it is really important that we continue to manage groundwater very responsibly. But um, on the Colorado River itself, you know, heavens, no one knows. Um, you know, we were really lucky this last winter uh, to get a huge snowpack up in the Rocky Mountains and uh, commensurate runoff that helped to some degree refill Lakes Powell and Meep. They're still um, very low in terms of total storage, but they're, they're better than where they were two years ago. But unless we solve the problem of overallocation of the river, or unless uh, Mother Nature decides to take mercy on us and, and you know, we get multiple years of very high snowpack, then those reservoirs will revert to decline. And that's just a math game. You know, the, the more we draw from those reservoirs, the quicker we will get to critical levels. The good news uh, is that, you know, these are uh, Lakes Powell and Mead are human controlled systems. So the federal government and all of us collectively do have the power to come up with alternative arrangements, alternative use provisions from the river to, to solve this problem. It, it, is, it is fixable. And for the most part, uh, in Arizona and California and Nevada, here in what we call the lower basin of the Colorado River, we have been uh, using less water off of the system in response to the crisis. We have been laying off uh, water that we otherwise would have used and storing it up in Lake Mead to kind of prop up those water levels. So for all that the river system is overallocated, we, we do have the power to change course. And that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. And before we talk about what those solutions look like, the last question I kind of have before we get to that, which I think is the most important part, obviously, uh, is, is the state of California. Uh, they tend to be problematic in a lot of ways. Not not always their fault, you know, the size of the state geographically and <laughs> population is 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 obviously complicated. Uh, but of course, the, the government has also failed to make a lot of good decisions over the last few decades in regards to a lot of issues, including the environment and water. How problematic is California in this? And, and you know, I don't know. I don't have a ton of background on this, but I, I from what I understand, California has. Un potentially unfair rights or unfair accessibility to the Colorado River, and they are also very dependent on it in Southern California. What is the deal with California on water, specifically Southern California, and how does that affect the rest of the West? Okay, so spoken like a true Arizona and Benji, but but I got to correct you on a couple of <laughs> good. Correct me. What is it? Keep my Cal keep California out of Arizona, or whatever that bumper sticker I just saw. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. No. Here's here's the thing. Um, I I don't I don't think it's fair to characterize California's access to Colorado River water as unfair, right? Uh, here in the Colorado River Basin and broadly throughout the West, uh, water rates are based on the concept of first in time, first in right. And what that means is that if you were if you put the water to beneficial use first, you have the highest priority claim to it. Well, Native Americans were here first, and, and so um, on the Colorado River, they tend to have the highest priority water rights. I examples of that um, include like the Colorado River Indian tribes, 
um, and others, which have, you know, some of the highest priority water rights on the system. But uh, next in line, we're farmers in, in California and Western Arizona. And it turns out that uh, growing crops in the desert is a fairly efficient and productive affair because we have so much sun. But because we have so much sun, growing these crops also takes a lot of water. So these early farmers were able to use a lot of water to grow a lot of crops. So they have high priority water rights to a lot of water. So I don't know that I would characterize it as unfair. Uh, it's just the way um, things evolved in the West. And uh, California is lucky to enjoy, you know, very high priority water rights compared to Arizona. Where some Arizonans kind of have some, some beef with that is that um, in or Arizona could not afford or get the federal authorization to build the Central Arizona Project Canal which imports Colorado River water from Western Arizona into Phoenix and Tucson uh, without, um, or let me put it this way, we couldn't afford it on our own and we needed federal authorization to build that, that uh, canal. You can imagine uh, back in the you know, 40s and, and 50s and 60s as, um, as we were debating payment and authorization for the canal, you know, we didn't have a lot of representatives in Congress. Our, you know, our population was very small and, and California just, you know, had more representatives and were far more politically powerful than Arizona was. So uh, California insisted that as a, a trade-off for authorization to build the canal, that the water that was delivered through the, ca the, the canal, the Colorado River water that was delivered through the canal, into the Phoenix and Tucson areas would be cut first uh, when there's not enough Colorado River water to go around before water in California would be cut. Uh. So that was kind of the deal we made, though, you know, and I think you can argue whether that was quote unquote fair at this point, you know, that's kind of moot. Right. And like I said, you know, being the first in line to have your water cut back makes you plan and and prepare very methodically and and ironically that has served us well in many ways yeah, i really appreciate hearing that and obviously it clears up some of the the drama that i uh <laughs> i've been hearing of california which my sister and a lot of my family live there so i can't hate on it too much so that's that's it's good i'll be able to descend it a little bit but it does sound like they you know they do have this prioritization and that has forced arizona to to think creatively about this. And that's why Arizona, I think, is is at the epicenter, and, and as you know, is at the epicenter of this, because it seems to me, like from the national dialogue, that people are talking about solutions and hope on this issue, which you opened up saying you're optimistic. They think about Arizona as a place where a lot of things are being tried and tested. And of course, there are lots of uh, academic institutions and other research uh, going on here in the state and in the region to, to figure out the, the solutions to this problem. The, the solutions seem very complex and similar to energy or other conservation measures. It seems like there's no silver bullet. Uh, a, is that true? And B, if it is true, where are you seeing the most headway uh, on, on solutions right now? And then we'll dive into what those are. Oh, it, it's absolutely true. There There is no silver bullet. It's, you know, there... There is a, a large solution space. Uh, there are many tools that are available 
but there's no one individual thing that that fixes all of this. Let me start first with conservation because one of the things I I hear time and time again is, you know, well, if you guys just use less water or if there were no lawns in Phoenix or, you know, if you guys weren't such water wasters, um, then this wouldn't be a problem. And and certainly we all need to use water as efficiently as possible. Um, and Phoenix has made huge strides in conservation, huge uh, wholesale cultural changes in how we use water. Let me let me give you an example of that. Back in the 1970s, when I was growing up uh, in here in Tempe, uh, something like 70 to 80 percent of single family homes had majority grass or lush landscaping. Today, that number in the city of Phoenix is less than 10%. Mm. That is just, that is a wholesale change in how people use water. Um, we have made huge strides. If you think about your toilet, your dishwasher, your, your uh, washing machine, all of these appliances that use water, they are far more efficient today than they were a generation ago. Those conservation um, efforts are real. They are meaningful. But you cannot conserve your way out of this problem um, because there's just a certain amount of water that needs to be flowing through pipes to meet potable demands and also to meet fire flows. You know, one of the primary things that a water utility provides is, is fire protection service. So there's just an amount of water. Pipes have to be a certain size reservoirs and tanks have to be a certain size. There's just a certain amount of water that, that needs to be running through the system to sustain the system. You cannot just conserve your way out of this problem. That being said, conservation is always the cheapest and best thing that you can go to. But there's a limit to it, right? right. Uh, to your point, there, um, there's, there's not a silver bullet. Um, yeah, and then... Arizona has been a pioneer in the use of reclaimed water as well. Again, out of necessity, because water is scarce out here. We've been reclaiming and reusing our uh, wastewater, oh my heavens, for at least 50 years, if not longer. The majority of it here in the Phoenix area is actually used for the cooling towers at the Palo Verde nuclear power plant, uh, which is a, a really interesting nexus between water and energy. And the, the Palo Verde nuclear power plant is actually the largest, um, well, uh, actually, it's the only nuclear power plant in the world that is not located on a major body of water. And it's only out here in the middle of the desert because we are able to provide it with reclaimed water for, for cooling purposes. But um, I think reclaimed water is an additional tool that, that we need to look to in the future. Right now, we use reclaimed water for um, watering, you know, grass at parks and schools and cemeteries and golf courses and things like that. And that's great. But in the future, we need to be looking at drinking it. And the city of Phoenix is actually embarking on such a project um, called direct potable reuse. Um, because the, that water is so valuable that it's, you know, really its highest and best purpose is for us to, to drink it. And I, I know that that grosses some people out, but um, what people need to remember is that it's called a water cycle because it's a water cycle and that all water on this earth has already, you know, been through a human, an animal, a plant um, at some point. <laughs> there, there is no new water on this earth and we have the technology to clean it. 
So those are kind of some of the solutions. I, I'm sorry, Benji, I went on there. No, but that's really, not. really great. And, and I'm, I'm going to keep diving in because that's exactly what I'm looking for here. I mean, that, that is so that is such great information. How do you see the transportation of water and desalination, two big solutions that are uh, proposed but obviously have huge hurdles? Can you go through both of those and, and the hurdles, but also maybe what opportunities there are, if there are any? Sure. Yeah, desal is certainly a, a tool in the toolbox, but it is incredibly expensive and energy intensive. And I have difficulty seeing it uh, being deployed at a scale that would, for example, fix the Colorado River system. Um, I, I think it, it will be deployed. It is an important tool, but it remains very, very expensive. And at the end of the day, it is going to be less expensive to uh, buy out or lease water from higher priority water right holders uh, like farmers. And so I, yeah, yeah. Now, let me give that some context because that's controversial. Anytime you move water rights from agriculture to urban uses, it is extraordinarily controversial for the reasons you mentioned, right? The, the impacts to rural communities and, and cultures. Um, so it is cheaper, uh, less expensive to buy out those rights or to lease them than, than to deploy desal, but it is also politically much more difficult. Right. So I, I don't know. I think that will be really interesting to see how those trade-offs get weighed. And do you see the cost of desalination that seems to be the biggest hurdle? And, and it's crazy that you'd even be able to, to con, you know, consider uh, selling the rights or you know, buying the rights of, of farmers. Like the, the fact that it's that expensive just speaks to how expensive it truly is. Is there a path to technology decreasing that cost over the next few decades? Or do you see that as the no-go for the cost to decrease? I don't see it as a no-go. I'm an optimist. but you know, and certainly the technology has been improving, but at, but it's just still so expensive compared to other solutions. Sure. It, it's just fundamentally very expensive. And transportation of water. I mean, people have talked about, I mean, these are probably pipe dreams, no pun intended, but uh, <laughs> to, to be bringing water from the Midwest or uh, the mountain regions of, of you know, Washington state where I just live, where there's tons of fresh water. Is there a way to transport water that's cost effective uh, from far, far away places? Or is that kind of off the table as well? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I know it's been studied at, at various times. And um, I also know that, you know, if you look back 100 years ago, the idea of building a, a ginormous canal and pumping Colorado River water uphill for 335 miles to get it to the city of Tucson would have seemed preposterous, right? Um, so I, you know, hey, never say no, but um, obviously that it would be hugely expensive. Not to mention, you know, extraordinarily politically um, controversial. <laughs> um, so I don't know on that one, uh, but. The interesting thing is that um, water projects entail huge economies of scale. Right. There's a reason why the provision of water service, the provision of, of wastewater service, is one of the foundational services that governments provide. 
Um, and that's because of the economies of scale. It, it takes a city, <laughs> right, um, to provide these services. It, it takes a large group of people to provide these expensive services. And when you look at the Colorado River system, you're talking about the economy of the Southwest, the major cities in California, New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado, um, and parts of Utah, um, and 40 million people. So you can afford a lot of solutions, is what I would say mm. to that. But I, I don't know. I to me, it still seems a little bit preposterous. We'll we'll see what they think in fifty years. Well, my my uh, my utopian Gen Z brain uh, that will of course harden as I get older says, "Come on, there's fresh water in tons of places. Why can't we just find its way here?" Uh, but uh, there's obviously way too many challenges to that. So that's interesting, interesting, interesting. So one of the other things that seems to be the elephant in the room is agriculture use in the southwest mm -hmm. is it sustainable to keep doing it in the southwest now i'm very pro farmer very pro rancher very pro american farming and ranching because it tends to be the lowest carbon emitting way to produce food for people but there is a blatant reality that maybe 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 this is mm -hmm. not the right place to do it what do you say I don't view it exactly that way, um, but, but I will say this. We, if we're going to manage the Colorado River system sustainably, we need to find a way to cut at least 1.2 million acre feet of, of water use annually off of the system. And that's a huge amount of water. We cannot get, we cannot cut that amount of water use without this participation of agriculture in a significant way. Um, so I don't know that I would frame it as saying that agriculture is not sustainable here in the Southwest. I would frame it as saying that we need to find ways, all of us collectively, the cities, the farmers, the miners, the power companies, you know, all of us who enjoy this water, we need to find ways to collectively reduce our water footprint, all of us. So to me, it's not a sector by sector issue so much as a way of um, forging a sustainable way of life out here in the desert that recognizes some of these inherent limits that will entail transfers. Mm -hmm. it, it will, um, not just between uh, agriculture and cities, but other transfers as, as well. Um, but I like to think of it in terms of, you know, what do we have enough water for? What, what are these uses of water that we value the most, uh, be that in terms of jobs or culture or economies, what, you know, however you want to define value, what are these uses of value? What are these uses of water that we value the most? We need to be having a public policy discourse about that and, and how to achieve that vision. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and it also, I mean, it, it's easy to say, okay, agriculture, which from what I researched before, we chatted 72% of Arizona's water goes to agriculture. I'm sure that number is somewhat fluid a little bit, but the other 28% is not agriculture, obviously. And so it's easy to say, well, you know, golf courses, swimming pools, um, that's not what's to blame. It's just agriculture. But the reality is that it's all contributing. And if you replace agriculture with more swimming pools or golf courses not saying that that's the trade-off but they're 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 real concerns of all 
industries of all areas. Obviously, even energy sources use a lot of water, residential, commercial buildings, all sources uh, of water usage. So there's there's real tough conversations that seem like they need to be had. How does a state like Arizona come to a political consensus on moving forward on this? Do you worry with the divide if there is a way to actually move forward, or is it going to be technology and private sector solutions mostly that we should be relying on? Wow, that, that's an interesting question. Um, all water use supports someone's job, someone's culture, you know, someone's community. Yep. And everyone thinks their own water use is justified and that no one else's is. Yeah. So that makes those conversations really, really difficult to have. Mm. Um, but the way you do it is, is you, get, you get all the stakeholders in a room and, and you talk it through and you sometimes fight it through and you, you have these painful conversations. Um, that's the only way that, that you can move forward. And the key is to find voluntary transactions if you can find them, right? Um, voluntary transfers of water, money can solve a lot of problems. Not all of them, you know, certainly not all of them, but it can solve a lot of them. Uh, the key is to find those types of voluntary transactions that, um, allow you to choose least worst outcomes, yep. right? And, and I use that carefully because in water, it, it's really hard to find, um, the best outcome, right? <laughs> it's really hard to argue that. That's outcome. not the right way to say. Yeah, you know, these are all the every every use of water involves a trade-off. So, so you're just you're trying to find uh, the the trade-offs that come with you know the the most benefit and the least cost. And but to whom and and under what conditions? All of that is so subjective and and so difficult to to um, come to agreement on. So, if someone was coming to you right now and they lived in. California, or they lived in New York, and they said, I'm thinking about moving to Arizona, but I'm really worried about the water problem. Should I move there or should I not? I want to I settle down roots there. I want to I have a family there. I want to be there for the next few decades, but I'm considering not moving because of the water problem. What would you say? I would say that it, it's that they should come. I, I would say that water is not going to be the limiting factor. And people falsely equate population growth with increased water use. Mm. Water use is much more closely correlated with land use than with population. So, uh, for example, in our hot desert sun, it takes about six acre feet per acre to grow an acre of alfalfa. Mm. Uh, or to grow alfalfa. And it only takes about one acre foot per acre to grow a subdivision. So it, it's really not people moving here um, that makes the huge difference in water use. It's what you're doing with the land. Uh, another example would be if you build a high rise in downtown Phoenix, its water footprint per person is very, very low. If you build a semiconductor factory, its water footprint is very high. So it, it's really equating water use with population growth is misleading. Fundamentally, water use is based on land use. And we need to be having the debates about 
what those uses of land should be um, and what those uses of land are that we most value uh, it, to confront some of these issues before us. But sure, people want to move here, move here. You know, it, it's beautiful here. The great quality of life, um, you know, much more affordable than a lot of other places in the country. And uh, people enjoy, you know, the, the amenities that Phoenix has to provide. Fundamentally, it's a free country and, and people are going to move where they're going to move. We, you know, if you look at the arc of, of history, I don't know that anyone has ever really been successful in stopping human migrations. Right. People move where they want to move. Yeah, and, and we're going to figure out the water problem because of people like you who are working on it. And, and I think that that's the, real, the reality is twofold. One, it's a problem. And two, we have time to figure it out. And we have people figuring it out. And those, those, those efforts need to increase. They need to uh, snowball into solutions that we can start deploying now. They're already doing so. And that's why I think my last question is, is hopefully one that we can talk about for a few minutes here, which is what are you most excited about? What are you working on? That people should find that optimism of, I'm, you know, I am moving from California. I am moving from New York. My girlfriend just moved here from New York. You know, why should someone be optimistic about moving here on this issue and what's happening that you're excited about on this issue? Well, people should feel comfortable moving here and investing in this economy because we have been able to manage our groundwater supplies sustainably. And that's really important. We, in 1980, we passed groundwater legislation that is still to this day the most progressive groundwater legislation that I can find in, in the country, if not the world. We tie uh, the subdivision of land and growth to proving up 100 years of water to support that development. And we do not allow development to occur on mined fossil groundwater. Those are two incredibly powerful um, management schemes. And it means that we have a chance to manage our aquifer sustainably, not just for current generations, but for, for this generation, but for future generations as well. That's hugely powerful. And to put that in context, if you look across the globe, what you will see for the most part is the depletion of aquifers. Here in Arizona, in central Arizona, we have done something right. Mm. And we have the chance to continue to maintain that uh, regulatory regime and to manage our aquifer sustainably. So that gives me great hope. Uh, the other thing that gives me hope is that, you know, water problems are um, expensive to solve and politically extraordinarily <laughs> difficult. It's hard, right? People have very, very strong emotions about water and who should use it and under what terms and when and how and where. Those conversations are very, very difficult. But all of the solutions are technologically feasible. Mm -hmm. And all of the solutions, for the most part, are things that humans have already been doing for thousands of years. So we're not talking about curing cancer. We're not talking about, you know, sending a rocket to Mars or, or those types of things. We are talking about things that are fundamentally solvable if we are disciplined and if we are careful and if we keep an eye out for future generations. And I'm optimistic that Arizona will do so. Well, le let's leave on that optimistic note. And I, and I really appreciate you joining because I think you've got this really pragmatic perspective of 
uh, of looking at this from from a holistic view that's not picking sides on this. It's looking at this with the realities, like you said earlier, are that everyone's water usage is justified to them. Farmers and ranchers feel like they're feeding our communities, which they are. Energy sources feel like they're, and, and the people who work for the energy and power companies feel like they're powering our communities, which they are. Golf courses and, and swimming pools and resorts feel like they're you know, bringing economic opportunity to this area, which they are. And of course, everyday users are, um, you know, using it to survive it, which is something that's incredibly important. So there is a need to have pragmatic conversation around this. This is not a winners or losers and picking winners and losers uh, conversation. This is not a silver bullet conversation. This is a hard, difficult, but to your point, optimistic conversation that has a lot of solutions out in front of us. Uh, and not a doomsday scenario like we often hear, but also not a non-problem by any stretch of the imagination. Catherine Sorensen, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for the research and, and, and dedication that you've given to this topic. Arizona's better off because of it, and uh, the whole world will be better off because of it. Because just like you said, not just a few decades ago, but even now, the rest of the world and the rest of the country is looking at Arizona for what to do on this issue, and hopefully that will continue. Thank you so much. Thank you, Benji. Awesome. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.